We just thank you for this opportunity to come together. We ask you to guide and lead us as we look at your word and your spirit will show us what you want us to see from this. Thank you for this opportunity to come together. In Jesus' name, amen. Isaiah chapter 43, starting at verse 1. But now, thus saith the Lord that created you, O Jacob, and he that formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by, na by your name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be, be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I gave Egypt for your ransom, Ethiopia and Seba for you. Since you were precious in my sight, you have been honorable, and I have loved you. Therefore, I will give men for you and people for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your seed from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, keep, keep not back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Even every one that is called by my name, for I have created him. For my glory I have formed him, yea, I have made him. So I want to just look at this. This section here is written specifically to Israel. But we can look at this that God has redeemed us as well. So it is also about us all right, in application. But it is specifically addressed to Israel. And we want to keep that in mind. And it says, Thus saith the Lord that created you. The idea of God being the creator is over and over mentioned in the scriptures. God created everything. And he's always reminding us. And this is why when people will go, you know, well, I can, I can believe what I want about the beginnings of things. You know, maybe God, maybe God used evolution. Maybe God, you know, isn't there. God continuously reminded us he created man and everything else for that matter. And this is why it's important for us. And I've said this many times, and it's been said by all the creationists out there. If the first part of Genesis is not true, the rest of the Bible is not needed. If Adam and Eve were not a special creation of God, and they did not sin and, and bring, bring evil and, and punishment and death upon all of humanity, there's no reason for Jesus to come, no reason for him to die, because there was no sin to die for. So the beginning book of the book must be true. And this is why I keep saying over and over, we have to believe the whole of the Bible. Not just bits and pieces. I can't go, well, I like this part. Well, this one's too far-fetched for me to believe. I like this part. Well, this is kind of weird. I'm not going to believe it. If we're doing that, what are we really putting our hope in? Nothing. We're putting it into a what we think is a fallible book. And we might as well just eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die if I'm going to put it, my faith in a fallible book. Or, what I'm, or the other side of the thing is I'm declaring that I'm God. I get to determine what's right and what's wrong. And here God's reminding us, reminding us, I am your creator, O Jacob. I formed you, O Israel. All right? And Jeremiah tells us that God knows us and, when, and knits us together in our mother's womb. All right. We were not a surprise to God. He did not. He He created us with a plan in mind, and has built us. So, these verses go back to show that God is with us from the very beginning, from our very beginning. 
and he goes back all the way to the beginning of this world, and we know that he is everlasting and eternal, so he goes back before the beginning of even that. And you know, this is wonderful when we think about how powerful is our God, how, you know, that he doesn't have a beginning and an end. He created everything, and he created it from nothing. And that's the amazing thing. He has been out there, and he just somehow thought up all this stuff from, from his imagination and created it. And when you really think about all that's out there with God, you know, all the brilliant colors, all the variations that he's put out there, and things that we are just now finding out. Now that we know how to get into the ultraviolet spectrum and see things from an ultraviolet spectrum and, and infrared spectrums, we're seeing that flowers have colors that we never knew existed. We see that some of the animals have colors we never existed because God put it there so that we could learn about it 6,000 years after he created it. It's an amazing thing when we think about the power and foresight of our God. And he's saying all this, he says, fear not. And the reason he's saying fear not, for I have redeemed you. All right, I have ransomed you. I have bought you back. Kinsman Redeemer. Kinsman, that's exactly what it is. Yeah. It's the same word as for kinsman redeemer. So he says, I have bought you back. You, you were in need of a person to redeem you, and Jesus is that kinsman redeemer. That is one of the things that Ruth, the story of Ruth tells us, is the kinsman redeemer, and it's an application where Boaz gets to be a picture of Jesus rescuing Ruth, who is a Gentile, which represents the church. So that book has all kinds of beautiful pictures beyond just the beautiful love story that it is. All right, it has that picture of Jesus redeeming Gentile people. And he says, don't fear for I have redeemed you. You know, redemption, to be bought back. And the funny thing is God created us in the first place. We belonged to him and then we sold ourselves into sin and he buys us back after that. You know, an amazing story. We think of Hosea, who's a, who's a picture of God with Israel, who is told to marry a, a harlot, and she keeps going back into her harlotry, and God keeps telling her, go buy her back because you're a picture of me. When we fall away, God says, okay, come on back. I'm, I'm, I'm paying the price. Come on. I paid the price. Get back over here where you belong. Quit running away. And we see this picture of God and his tremendous love for us. You know, and we think about this, how much love would we have for, for us? <laughs> you know, we don't have much love for other people, and we know ourselves and probably realize that we don't deserve the love that God gives us. And yet he loves us. And that's why one of the most powerful verses for witnessing is John 3:16, for God so loved the world that he gave his son. You know, all these verses go that God loves us. He redeems us. He buys us back. The Old Testament people go, well, well God was an angry God. Look what he did to, to Israel and all these things. Well, when I read the Old Testament, I go, look how gracious and merciful God is. He didn't crush, he didn't crush Israel when they deserved it. He punished them, and then he'd bring them back, and then he'd punish them, and he'd bring them back, 
and he'd punish them, and he'd bring them back. But over and over again, he's saying, I love you so much, please obey me. Send in the prophets to say, obey, turn, repent, and then he'd punish them, and then he'd bring them back. And it's an amazing love story to me when I look at it and see just how much God loves Israel, and he loves his people. And when I see the patience he has with Israel, it makes me feel really good. God will have patience with me. You know, when I mess up, God's going to have that same patience with me. Now, that doesn't mean I'm going to escape punishment. It doesn't mean I'm going to escape trials and tribulations. It just means God is with me. He's redeemed me. When I think that all is lost, I, all I really have to do is think about what did God pay? You know, how much did it cost for him to pay by? And if you think about anything, if you've ever bought something really big that you spent lots of money for that you didn't have, and it was your money, you didn't borrow it or anything, it was your money, you saved it up and you spent it, you have great desire to protect that and to keep it. And that's where we are with this. So God says, I have redeemed you, I have called you by your name, you are mine. I love this, God calls us by name. And when you think about all the people God has to know by name, but not only does he know people by name, it says he knows every star by name. And when you really think about that, that is a lot. you know, the, how many stars are out there, and God has named them, and he knows all their names. Who, uh, who knows what they are? They're probably more than just gas giants like we think they are. He knows our names. We are his. Revelation tells us that when we get to heaven, he's going to give us a new name that only he and we know. So it would be one of those pet names. It's your, you know, not to be sacrilegious, it's that pillow talk name that you have for your, for your spouse, you know, that, you know, that you don't really let other people know. It's just your little <laughs> name for each other. And that's what God says. He's going to give us that name. Probably related to our character. He changed Abra, Ab, Abram's name to Abraham. He changed Jacob's name to Israel. He's changing people's names all through Scripture. He changed uh, Solomon's name to uh, all of them. Most a lot of people who were really close to him. He changed, a lot of them, he changed their names. But in Revelation, he says he's going to give us a name in heaven that's between him and us. You know, uh, and it's kind of an amazing thought. He is going to give us a name, and his name's going to mean something. Names, and it's an amazing thing when we look at names. How many times have people looked up their names in a name book and, and, and they found out what their name means? And you, a lot of times it really does represent who you are when you look, look it up. Uh, you know, and it's kind of very funny you know, that even though our parents didn't plan names quite like they did in the Old Testament, yet somehow that name tends to match Oftentimes, not 100% of the time, but oftentimes. But we see here, he says, I know you, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you go and through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned, and neither shall the flame kindle upon you. This, I do believe, has been metaphoric. It's not literally saying that we're walking through this. He goes, but when we're going through those trials... When I'm walking through the water, literally in the water, going through it, or walking through the River Jordan that has been split, or the Red Sea that has been split, I am with you. 
all right? And the river will not overflow you, so don't worry about this. This is God's truth to us. Because when you're going through the fire, the fires of trials, <laughs> when you think you're going to be burned up and destroyed, God says, it's not going to touch you. And in the case of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it was a literal not being touched. Now, Isaiah's not there yet with them, but you know, they might have been looking back to Isaiah saying, God says he's going to can protect us in the fire. We're getting ready to go into the fire. <laughs> All right? I'm not saying this was a prophecy, but this is. How many times do we go through trials with our eyes focused on God and don't even feel the trial and the pain? Other times we feel every bit of it. But you know, the promise here is that God is with us. Always. It's not just a New Testament promise. He does not say he's going to keep us from the trials. He says he's going to keep us through the trials. And this is very important for us to understand as Christians, especially here in America. We have so much prosperity gospel being taught and turn to Jesus and everything's going to be okay. That was a real popular thing in the 60s and 70s during the Jesus movement. Come to Jesus and everything will be good. The only problem is it's not a true statement. And our prosperity gospel preachers say the same thing. Well, give to Jesus, turn to Jesus, and all your needs will be met. Well, the problem is what they mean by needs is not what God means, because God says he's going to meet all our needs. But that does not mean he's going to make it easy. The one thing about walking with faith by God is that God meets our need at the last possible moment. You know, you've got to be trusting him, and you're so tempted at that time to go do something to fix the problem. Uh, God, you know I need this money next week. God, you know I need the money in three days. God, you know I need the money tomorrow. What can I do to go make this money? And then God puts it in your hand somehow. You know, if you don't panic. If you panic, then you've done it on your own, and God says, well, you didn't wait. I had, I had it all planned for you, but you didn't wait. But the news here is God keeps us through the trial. Not away from the trial. And we go to Psalm 23, you know, yea, Lord, I walk through the shadow of the valley of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. You know, same, same principle. I'm walking through the trials. Paul walked through a lot of hard trials. And he says, I've learned to be content. In light, light afflictions. These, these light afflictions are nothing. You know, because his mind and eyes were focused on God. I really truly believe he believed that most of the time and lived it. And the, the picture of him and, and Silas in the Philippian jail after they'd been beating, singing at midnight. Probably, got, probably would have given him another beating from the prisoners if they'd kept going without an earthquake. But you understand what I'm saying. God was their focus. You know, and you can picture him, you know, Silas, I thought, we were, I thought we were going home this time. We got beat so bad. And here we are. God's letting us live for another day <laughs> and worshiping God. Yeah. And I, I hope that we can be in that same ball, that same park. We're beat, we're hurt, we're really feeling bad, but we continue to worship God. And I would hope so. We see it over and over. You know, I, I read Tortured for Christ, by the story of Richard Warmbrandt, and he talked about all the beatings he took and all the hardship he took, and yet he praised God. Now, he did talk about being beat so bad that he forgot about God for a couple for a period of time because he was so beat and lack of sleep, but he still loved God. And you know, where are we with God? Can we look at our suffering and say, thank you, God? 
you're with me. You're trying me, but you are with me. You've got a plan. And a lot of that comes into how much do I trust the scriptures? Do I truly believe that God is with me in the middle of the trial? Do I really believe that God has a plan? Do I really believe that all things work together for good? If I, if I can answer each one of those yes in the middle of the trial, then God has got a great blessing for me. I'm able to sit back and just let God be God. And I'm not saying it's easy. Because those trials are designed to make us doubt. If we're going to doubt, God makes sure that the trial is hard enough to force us to trust on him. And God's not dead too. The, the teacher who's on trial you know, told her uh, father, you know, I just don't feel God anymore. And that's when he said, you know, you, you're a teacher. You know that when you're in the middle of the test, the teacher, the teacher stands back to see what you know. And that's the purpose of our tests. God has been teaching us and teaching us. Now he puts us in the trial and the test. Am I going to believe what I, what I say I believe? Am I going to trust in what I say that God has taught me? And sometimes we pass, sometimes we fail. When we fail, we get to do it all over again. When we pass, we get to go to the next step and take the next graduation uh, ceremony that was coming our way. Uh, but it says, I am with you through. And he goes through a number of things, the, the water, the floods, the, the, the flame. You know, he goes, I am with you through all of these things. That way, if you're not worried about water, flame, flame most people are worried about. All right? He says, I am with you. And again, why? For I am the Lord your God. All right? He is our Lord, Master, and he is our God. And then he says, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I'm the one that redeemed you. I'm the one that has brought you back. I'm your Master. I'm your God. I'm the Holy One, and I am your Savior. I think he's trying to make a point here. <laughs> You know, are you willing to trust me? Are you willing to sit back and trust me? You know, if, if you don't like one title, pick the other title. <laughs> you know, I, I'm the Lord, your God, the Holy One, and your Savior. Then he gives a very I gave Israel, uh, Egypt for your ransom. Now, this is talking directly to Israel. And God is saying, I sacrificed Egypt. Because go back to what God did to Egypt during the Ten Plagues. He destroyed Egypt. Egypt was the reigning empire of, it, of that day. They controlled everything, and God destroyed them economically through the Ten Plagues, destroyed their firstborn, their strong, strongest children, and then when they foolishly tried to follow Israel through the Red Sea, God drowned their army. So he's destroyed them. He destroyed Israel, uh, Egypt, economically and militarily, and wiped them out for a period of time. There's that period of time in Egypt's history where they were just about wiped out, and we had a new dynasty take over during that period of time. Economically, it was bad enough. Then to lose your army, now you don't even have money to buy to buy a new army. Your your strength is gone. You're having to rebuild everything. You're having to rebuild your children, your economy, and somehow be able to build an army. A lot of them had been in the army as well, so they lost the, most of the men. Uh, it was a devastating time for them. And God says, I ransomed Egypt for you. 
Egypt was the payment to get you out of Egypt. And that is quite a powerful thing. God will destroy our enemies if that's what it takes to ransom us. And I have seen it happen in more than one case where God has taken an enemy of somebody and destroyed them. Now, many people go, well, I don't know if that was God. I know it was God. Okay? I know it was God because there was no reason for what happened to them to happen. I've seen a man lose his business. I've seen another man lose his family. And not because it was all against me. It was against other people that I knew they shouldn't have been dealing with. And I know that happens in other places. God will ransom the enemy if, they, if that's what it takes to redeem you. And, you know, so you can... So the application is don't get on God's wrong side. <laughs> you know, don't be the one that's causing somebody to need to be ransomed from you. All right? Uh, he says... Ethiopia and Serbia for you. Those are two other powerful places, and God took them out. You know, this is God saying, I am willing to sacrifice for my, the lost world that is not going to be redeemed for his children. And this is hard for us to understand sometimes. You know, do these people necessarily deserve what they got? Absolutely. They deserve it. Otherwise, God wouldn't do it. Is it something that we should rejoice that they got over? I don't believe so. I've already said, uh, David prayed precatory prayers, God go get them prayers all the time. I don't pray God go get them prayers. Because I feel sorry for the people who get God. I would, I'm more along Paul's line, God, I'm willing to take the, pun uh, the pain and, and suffering if, if it will lead them to salvation. And that's why I put up in the wall, you know, what is the value of one soul? I always want to remember that statement. That if I'm going through a hard time, if that will lead somebody to Christ, I am willing to go through that hard time. Now, I may not see them come to Christ, <laughs> but my goal in prayer is, God, if this will help somebody, I'm willing to go through what you want me to go through. I haven't got to where Paul or Moses were. God, if, if, if this will get the, the nation to heaven, then take me and put me into hell. I'm not quite that far yet. Uh, you know, I'm not quite to a place where I'm saying, okay, God, I'll go to hell just if, if they'll get saved. I'm not showing that much love yet, but I don't want people to hurt. All right, I am that far. God, I don't care if they're hurting me. I don't, if, it, if, if my being calm during this trial will help win them, then, then do what it takes to get them to come to Christ. And this is what he's saying. God is willing to sacrifice anything for his children. You know, he, he is that statement where my dad's stronger than your dad. My dad can protect me. Well, God is my dad, and he, he can do whatever's needed, and he will, he will, if necessary, protect us. And this is the thing. Even when we go through these trials and tests and people harass us and give us hard times, God is using them for a test, but that doesn't mean that they're free of the judgment that's going to happen because of it. Egypt was used to test Israel during the slavery and everything, and yet God judged them. All right? Uh, Assyria is going to conquer and be brutal to the northern kingdom, and God's going to judge Assyria. All right? God used them to punish his people, and because they went too far, he then punished them. You always reap what you sow. These people that are used by God to punish and, and test us, will also be judged for their, you know, for their actions. 
And this is something that is kind of mind-boggling when you see all the circular things that God's got out there. You know, they're used to test us and try us, and then God judges them for doing it because he knows where they're at. And when God's going to judge somebody like that, he knows that they're not going to be repentant. Right? He knows that they're not going to turn around, and only God can know that. We don't know that. And sometimes that hard time they go through may be just what they needed to repent. And we don't know that either. And you know, all I can say when I watch people suffer is, God, you know. You know. You know. You know all things. You know whether they needed it. You know how bad, they, how bad it had to go. Because I've seen people go, get hammered. I'm going, God, is that really what it took to get them to, to turn to you or not turn to you, whichever the case might be? And obviously I'm not trying to question God because he knows and he wouldn't do it if that's not what was needed. But sometimes you look in and go, wow, are they really that hard? And they probably are. Are they really that hard? Egypt would not repent, and they, ju they were judged drastically. They were taken out vir virtually as an empire for a period of time and had a new dynasty, new, king new kingdom start, and had to reestablish themselves as a kingdom as they were invaded from outside and taken over. <laughs> so we see this in verse 4. says, since you were precious in my sight, highly esteemed, God looks at us in a totally different way than we look at our, ourselves and each other. This is something that's really important for us to understand. God says we are precious, highly esteemed precious. How then should we deal with other Christians and other people that belong to God? When somebody gets, falls in love with somebody and you know, really falls in love with them, they don't see their failures and, and flaws uh, Jesus loves his church. He has clothed us with his righteousness. He, he, we are precious to him. Can you imagine how angry he might get or probably does get when somebody criticizes a part of his bride that he's died for, paid for, cleansed, made perfect, and somebody he, he goes in prayer and God, God, you know that person's, you know, terrible, awful person, God says, I died for them. That's, my, that's part of my bride. As a matter of fact, it's part of your body that you're, that you're criticizing. You know, and this is why we need to be careful because there may just be judgment for that kind of judge, judging of, our, of the body of Christ. And it's really bad if you go into pastors because it says they're worthy of double honor or other leaders who are worthy of double honor. And God says, well, it's bad enough that you do it to your other fellow Christians, then you're going to go against the leaders? God does not hold us guiltless. And consequences will come from that. It's one reason I try as hard as possible to stop. Don't, don't be judging that person. They stand or fall before God. God is more than capable of taking care of his children. More than capable of taking care of his church. More than capable of taking out leaders if they're not bad, if they're not doing the right things. God is able to take care of all of that. You know, and we've got to realize that God doesn't need our help. He allows us to be part of his kingdom. He allows us to witness to people. He allows us to minister to people. But he does not need our help. And that was proven when Balaam was talked to by a donkey. 
you know, that was proven when the Pharisees and the triumphant entry, the Pharisees came to Jesus and said, tell these people to quit crying out these blasphemous words. They're calling you the king. They're calling you a leader. And what was Jesus' answer? If they were quiet, the rocks would cry out. Now, I would have almost loved to have seen that down in history. Jesus silenced the crowd and the rocks cried out. <laughs> you know, that would have made news, you know, that would have made the newspapers. That would have been in some report somewhere. You know, but you know, this is what's important. God gives us the privilege of serving with him. Not because he needs us, but he just allows it. Because he could do whatever he wants. You know, he could have more donkeys talking, he could have more dogs talking, he could have your cat talk to you if that's what it takes. You know, you know, he doesn't he doesn't need us, but he gives us the privilege of helping. And that that is humbling in one side, and yet it is also exalting. God, you're allowing me to serve you. Too many people feel that they must serve God. And yes, there is a side of that which is true, but it's more the privilege that we get to serve him. God, I get to serve you. I get to be able to do things and watch your kingdom grow. And that's the one thing I love. You know, I tell, I tell you guys and other people, I've got the great job as a pastor. I just teach you what God wants you to know, and it's up to you what you do with it. Now, I want you to live for God. I want you to apply it. But I'm not responsible for what you do with it. I'm responsible to try to live the best example I can and get, encourage you to follow and try to be the, the example. Teach you what God says, apply it myself, and then let God work on your heart. So it's a, it's a privilege just to be able to be used by God. Because I'm not demanding, you know, I have no right to demand. Because I'd have to demand myself first, and I'm having enough trouble keeping myself in straight most of the time, much less try to demand that everybody else <laughs> get right. But I tell you what God says. And then watch God work on your hearts. It's a, it's a fun job. It was a fun job discipling my children over the years. Heartbreaking at times, but, but hard. But, but a pleasure. It says, you were precious in my sight. You have been honorable. And the word here is literally kabold in, in Hebrew, which means made heavy with honor made heavy with praise. You, know, you have been honorable. I can just, I just wonder what it must be like in heaven. God just talking to the angels up in heaven. See what that, see what my child just did? Look, look how good that child, you know, okay, Raymond's covered by the blood, don't look at that one. Look what my child just did. You know, oh, that one's covered by the blood. Yep, that, look, 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 angels, see, see, see what I'm serving me? You know, God, keeps praise on us because we're covered in the blood of Christ and he sees us in, our, in, in what he considers perfection. You know, when we stand at the, the beam of seat of Christ as Christians, it's not for him to find things to criticize us with. He's looking for things to give us blessing with. And this is the amazing thing. If you are God's child, there's going to be something in your life if nothing else, it's that faith act of saying, Jesus, I accept you, and you'll, you'll get blessed for that one. You get the crown of life for that one. You get, if you lead somebody to the Lord, you get crowns for that one. If you just serve him, you get, get rewarded. 
God is looking for all the little things he can use to reward us. And this is, we're actually taught this in management, you know, look for ways you can praise people. If you want to be a good manager, look for ways that you can encourage people. People will respond better to encouragement than they do to threats. Now, they might, they might pretend to be doing the right thing for threats, but they're usually doing eye service. If they're if my insight or I'm being, you know, being looked at, then I'm going to work real hard and work real good. If I don't, I'm going to get away with as little as possible. When you start pleasing, uh, praising people, they're looking for more praise, and usually they work good even when they're not being watched. God understands this, and he heaps praise on us. He heaps his grace on us. And because he loves us so much, that should motivate us to serve him in greater capacity and try harder to serve him. And this is what he's saying. He heaps. We've been honorable. I have loved you, therefore I give men for you and people for your life. God says he's willing to sacrifice anything for his children. This is twice now he's mentioned this. First was Egypt and then uh, Ethiopia and Serbia. Now he says anything else. Anything else that gets in your way, I am ready to sacrifice them. How much peace and confidence should that give us? God, you're willing to take out my enemy? God, you're willing to destroy others so that I get what you want me to have? To me, this is scary. This is a scary thought about what God can do and might do or will do. All right? We see Israel being returned to their land. And when they returned to their land, that means they had to fight for it because they, people didn't want them there. We see Israel in 1948 being returned to their land. And they bought most of their land, and you know, they're accused now of stealing it because we're one generation away, and people forgot that they bought the land. It wasn't just taken from them by, by England. They bought most of the land because they, didn't, they weren't going to wait for the international laws to catch up. And because now they have turned the swamp lands that they bought into a thriving cultural, uh, archaeological area, people want the land back. They, they laughed all the way to the bank. You know, these, these fools bought this money at a premium price. They bought my swamp for a premium price. Now they're crying in their, crying in their beer that they got taken as they laughed, at the, you know, laughed all the way to the bank. And now they're being accused of stealing the land, and God says, I'm going to protect you. They get attacked, and God protects them. And they win the battles that they're not supposed to win. And they're going to continue winning the battles they're not supposed to win. All through the tribulation, they're going to win the battles they're not supposed to win. And when the entire world comes against them, God will step in and win the battle for them directly as Jesus returns with us following him and just ends the battle completely. And says, okay, enough is enough. You guys are gone. And the millennial kingdom starts. God will continue to defend his people. He will defend us. And this is why I keep telling us all the time, let God be your defense. Because as soon as you start trying to defend yourself, it is an endless cycle of trying to defend yourself. Because you will just be battling forever, trying to say, you know. And what's worse is the more you try to defend yourself, the more people start thinking that you're something that you're hiding, that you're having to fight against so hard. You know, the idea where there's smoke, there's fire, and you're creating a whole lot of smoke, so there must be a fire in there someplace. We've hit close to home, otherwise you wouldn't be, 
you wouldn't be fighting so hard. And if we just will shut up once in a while and say, God, you defend me. You defend my honor. You defend my reputation. Because when I'm fighting hard and I'm getting angry because my reputation is being slandered, I'm probably going to say and do things I shouldn't do. And if I can just have faith in God, sit back, he'll sacrifice all the people he needs to sacrifice to make, to make them shut up and make them be quiet. And he will exalt us. Now that is, of course, assuming that we haven't done anything to deserve, deserve, to deserve the attack. But if I'm just living my life as a Christian and people are attacking me, saying, you know, saying things, and every once in a while somebody will come, well, you know, so-and-so saying something about you, Pastor, I'm going, that's between them and God. God is my defense. I mean, if I deserve it, I deserve it. We think of David leaving the town and, and Ziba throwing rocks at him. And what's he tell the people? Well, maybe God sent him. Maybe, maybe there's something in my life that I deserve this for, so we're just going to take this. We're going to take this and let God be my defense. David understood that principle. He didn't always follow it, <laughs> but he understood that principle of let God defend me. And we need to be able to say, God, defend me. And he'll take out anybody he needs to do to defend us. And, I, and like I said so many times, it scares me sometimes when I see him when he defends. People suffer. And they, des they, they deserve it, and I know that they deserve it. The ones I've seen that happen to, I know they deserved it. But the, you know, I think, wow, God, did it really take that much? Did they really need to be punished that much? Yeah. Well, he's taking lives. He's taking lives. He took, he took Egypt's life. He took all the men of Egypt, pretty much, and the women in the military. He took their life. He took the firstborns. You know, he destroyed their economy, which made life difficult for them. I mean, now. Well, he'll do it now. He'll do it now. He does it now. I've seen work, you know. So, God will make those judgments. Verse 5, fear not, for I am with you. So here he goes. He repeats it again. I am with you. This is our greatest promise. Jesus died on the cross. He lives in us. He's not only with us. He is in us. And when he came in us, he sent the Holy Spirit in us. And Paul goes one step further and says, the fullness of the Godhead bodily dwells in you. So we have the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit dwelling in each one of us that are his children. It's quite crowded inside of us. Uh, but that's what we were built to accept. God created us with the need to be filled by him. And here, even in the Old Testament, he's saying, I am with you, always. That gives us great confidence. He says, I will bring your seed from the east. I will gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, keep not back. Bring my sons from far and my daughters from the ends of the earth. So here he's specifically talking about Israel. Bring all my people together. This happened at the end of the Babylonian ca captivity. They were brought back to Egypt, uh, back, brought back to Israel. And they were sent there by Cyrus. They says, okay, my name, is, my name is in the Old Testament, you know, in the book that you just pointed to me, long before he was born, long before Cyrus would have been used as a name in, by the Hebrews, they wrote his name in there. And as the one that was going to return the children of Israel, 
And I'm sure it was Daniel who showed it to him. Here, Cyrus, here's your name. Here's what you're supposed to do. And Cyrus did it. Because you probably asked Daniel, when was this book written? Oh, 150 years ago. And here is your name in it. Sends them back. 70 AD, Israel scattered again for their disobedience. 1948, God calls them back and sends them back. And it's kind of interesting because so many times you'll talk to so many Jewish people and one of the things that their heart is either to go at least visit Israel and many of them are wanting to go back to Israel and live. And we're going to see this more and more happening as anti-Semitism starts really kicking in and it is already starting big time. More and more as they're, as they're rejected in the world's stages, they're going to decide to go back to Israel and be where God says they're supposed to be anyway. He's calling his people home. Whether they know it or not, they're being called to their home. And some of them are going to have to be pressured into it because people are so, so evil toward them. All right? And that's happening in Europe. Anti-Semitism is flaring up big time. But even in America, anti-Semitism is really flaring up in our country again. And it's scary when I hear some of the things and see some of the things that are going on. There are people that hate Jews and Israelites. And that's just going to drive them back to Israel, but that's what God says they're going to be. That's where he's going to be protecting them, is when they are in their land. Is this like a picture of the raptures? Not so much for this one. This is God calling them, calling his people back home. Okay. And we, like I said, we saw it after the Babylonian Empire, and we're going to, we are currently seeing it. They're calling back to their land. In one sense, if you really want to spiritualize it, but I'm not going to spiritualize this. This one is a literal one. Yes, God calls the church out in, in, in a rapture, but I'm, that, that's not what this one's talking about. <laughs> he says, I'm calling my people home. They're going to come home. And he goes to all four points of the compass saying, I'm going to bring my people home. And we're seeing this happen. And for those who didn't want to go there voluntarily, God's going to try to make them go <laughs> by making life miserable for them so that the only place they're going to feel safe is in Israel. And he says, I've called them. I've called my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Even everyone that is called by my name, for I have created him for my glory and formed him, yea, I have made him. And this one goes for both Israel and us. He says, I have called everyone that is called by my name. By my name. Israel, he says, is my, God says, is my wife. I have called Israel. We, as the church, are the bride of Christ. He has called us. And we have responded. And we are his. And it says, for I have created him for my glory. Not our glory for his own glory. Now, I don't know why God needs more glory. <laughs> He's got all the glory he needs. But he created man for his glory. He redeemed man for his glory. He keeps us for his glory. He gets exalted when he delivers his people. 
He gets exalted when he redeems his people. By every single person? Not necessarily. But you know, there's coming a time at the white throne judgment when every knee will bow and give him glory. And a lot of it will be because of what, how faithful he has been to his people. And they're going to go, you are God, you are Lord. Now it's too late. That's not, that that confession's not going to get them into heaven. Their, their fate was sealed when they rejected God on earth or before, earth, before everything created for the angels that fell. They rejected God. Well, I don't know if they're, at that point, they're being literally forced to, to bow. You know, there'll be an angel on each side of them putting them on their knees and God will put those words in their mouth and they will say those words and they will say it maybe bitterly they will say it being with every ounce of not wanting to say it, but every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Now, whether it's absolutely forced or he is just so overwhelming proof of it and they say it voluntarily because of the proof that's been presented, they will say it. Satan will probably be forced to say it. I can't imagine him saying anything other than being what's forced. Yeah, they're not being repentant. They're not, they're not uh, wanting to follow God. And even if it was, it's too late. Once you see God and you see the entrance to the, to the lake of fire, you're going to say everything you need to, to to get out of it. But it's too late at that point. We, like they, will see that, they're getting, that God gave them more than, more than enough chances, and they rejected him. It wasn't like they wasn't warned. They were warned. This gets you into the whole debate. Will people remember their family members that were cast into hell. And there's two basic school of thoughts. No, I couldn't remember it, remember it without causing tears, so God must wipe it from my mind. And that's a possibility, but that means all kinds of holes in your mind when you're in heaven. But then he said, no tears will. And that's why people will say, that I couldn't remember this, if, uh, I couldn't remember this without tears, remember them. I tend to fall on the side that because now I understand everything about why they're there, everything that God did to try to keep them from going, that I would be able to know that they're there without the tears. I might be a little sad and there's no sadness in heaven, but I don't know how it all works out. But I will know that they got what they deserve. Because there are families when we're in, in looking at them, we'll spiritual families. Oh, that's true. God will replace it. That's what he told the disciples. None of you have given up family, family or anything and not received more. So what we have will be so overwhelming compared to what we lost, and I'll know that they, and we'll know what they got. Either way, it doesn't matter. One, after a while, we won't think about it because one of the greatest blessings, and you hear it in testimonies a lot. I had a miserable, terrible family that were nothing, and now that I'm saved, I have all kinds of people who love and care for me that are now my family. And we realize, and that's what heaven's going to be. We have family. A, a, a loving, caring family, and those ones that were miserable, terrible to us, that rejected God, got what they deserve. And I don't care whether he wipes it from our mind or just explains it to us. Either way, the end result is the same. I'm not worried about those who get to hell. And a gazillion years from now, I probably won't even be thinking about them at all. I'll be enjoying my new family. We will have glorified bodies. We will be perfect in our mindset. And because we understand it from God's perspective, we're seeing it from the right side of the tapestry, yeah, we can understand why, why they got what they got. 
and we'll understand every time. And I think God will show, you know, and I believe that the right throne in judgment, that when they stand there, it's not saying these are what your sins, but here's when I told you about Jesus, here's when I told you about Jesus, here's where I told you about Jesus, here's, here's where I told you about Jesus. You rejected me X number of times, you're now going to where you, where you chose to go. Yeah, it's not because you were bad, it's because you didn't. Because you rejected Christ. Why do bad things happen? Well, because of sin. My sin, other people's sins, it doesn't really matter why the bad thing happens, but it happens because we live in a fallen world. This is world is not the world God created, and it is only getting worse. As sin's death gets deeper and deeper into the DNA, deeper and deeper into our relationships, it gets worse. And I can't imagine how deep it's got to get before God judges it, we're not there yet, apparently, because we're not gone. You know, how far does it have to go? I don't know. You know, there are still people who aren't doing evil, you know, that aren't saved. So we're not there yet. But we are getting worse. We are getting more and more people living the way they want to live and excusing it. And we see the fulfillment of Scripture. So unless a great revival occurs, we're very close to the, the end. How close? Don't know. I don't, I'm not going to pick a date on it. I was told a long, long time ago, live like Jesus is coming today. Plan your evangelism, everything, as if he's not coming in your lifetime. All right? So we make our plans as if he's not coming. We're going to minister. We're going to do things. We're going to make our plans. We're going to share Christ. We're going to do all these things. I'm going to provide for my retirement, all these things. And if he comes today, praise God, somebody else gets to benefit of what's out there. It doesn't matter to me. If he doesn't come, I'm prepared. And don't know. The disciples thought he was coming in in their lifetime. That's what I'm thinking. They thought he was coming in their lifetime. They had a pretty bad time. I mean, Rome was bad. Rome was evil. But they sparked a revival that turned the world upside down and that's why when people go, well, things are so bad, we can't see a revival. You're not really understanding how bad Rome was. Homosexuality was rampant in Rome. Adultery was rampant in Rome. Fornication was rampant in Rome. Murder, robbery was rampant in Rome. All right? And I'm talking about the Roman Empire, period. Evil and nastiness was, amongst people was not a problem. If you were not strong enough to defend yourself, they were actually living in an evolutionary, an evolution's point of view. The strong survive and the weak die. But they lived it out. We're starting to get to that point. Uh, and this is why I keep saying, we are not going post-Christian, we are going pre-Christian in everything that's going on. We're going back to what has always been. We had a small window of almost 2,000 years where things have been fairly godly in this world. It is changing, and it's changing fast. And it's returning back to what used to be. And we have to be able to really understand how bad it was in Rome to really understand we are just returning. We had a short window. And short by, you know, short by, by God's standards, pretty long by human standards, but we had a short window where God's righteousness reigned in what we would call in the Western world, the civilized world, the Western world. How many years did you say that? 1,400 and uh, seven, uh, uh, some years. 
Jesus died in died in uh, in thirty one. Yeah, so we're only we're only two years away from being two thousand years. So. So, because we're at 2019 now, so uh, we're 10 year, 10, 12 years from from being 2,000 years. So, well, not a lot longer than that. Almost 2,000 years. Zero to, to 20, uh, 2019, and add 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 29 years to it. So, 2,000 years. I mean, I could the exact number is 1,988. So, you know, for, so you might as well say 2,000 years we have been fairly righteous. Now, does that mean perfectly righteous? No, there was a long time when we weren't righteous, but God's love and mercy in the Western civilized world was reigning. But I, I keep thinking about when, when the Christians were killing people in the Jesuits. No, that's what I'm saying. It, it wasn't a perfect world. But still... Even with the Catholic Church, as bad as it was, it was still reaching out with orphanages. We're still building hospitals. We're still doing evangelism to the best that they could. Yeah, well, we had a lot of bad times. But what, what I'm saying, if you were in, if you were in Asia, or Africa, or much of the Middle East, or South America, or even North America before it got colonized by the Western world, things were awful. There was no righteous. There was sacrifices and human sacrifices and worship of the deities, you know, multiple deities out there. Women were, were and still are chattel in many of those, those areas, all right? Asia still, women have very few rights unless you live in the cities that have been westernized. Outside of those cities, women are still looked at as just property, and totally worthless, without rights. Most of Africa is the same way. All the Muslim world's that same way. We have a small pocket of the world that got Christianity in it, and women's rights were raised up, and people cared for the, for the orphans and the widows, and built hospitals, and cared for the weak. In much of the world, it is still to this point, well, that person's sick, let them die. Well, that person has disabilities, let them beg on the street, and if they die, they die. If they live, they were strong enough to, to live. It is still true in most of the world. And it's becoming truer in the Western civilization again as we get further and further from God. Babies? Who needs babies? You know, sick? Yeah. You know, elderly? Yeah, they're going to just waste their kids' in, in, uh, inheritance. Let them die. Matter of fact, even help them die. But this is where we are. We're returning to the barbarism of pre-Christianity. And it's becoming everywhere, which is why I believe we're close to the end times without a major revival. Will God give us a major revival? One side of me says, I hope so. One side of me says, just come. You know, you know come Jesus, come. I'm ready to go home. So where, where are we at with this? Pray. God, your will be done. Help me stay faithful. I do believe that we have some, if this is the end times, we don't have a revival. We have some serious trials coming our way. And we need to prepare for it. It's going to come a time when being a Christian is going to be dangerous again, just as it was in the Roman Empire, where the Caesars came out and attacked Christians and slaughtered them. And again, if you've read Fox's Book of Martyrs, you understand some of what went through. And that book is very hard to read when you go through and see how abusive they were of people. 
how they disgraced people. You know, in their day and age, they would, they, would, they would march the Christians through the cities naked on their way to these things because they knew that that would mortify them. And it didn't bother them at all. They, you know, the Romans, the Greeks, they didn't care. The na- nakedness wasn't anything to them. To the Jews and to the Christians, it was a big deal. You did not expose your body to, to other people. And yet in our world, where are we coming to this day? We got some people that practically have no clothes on. Might as well not have any clothes on when you see what they're wearing. And we're getting to the place where nudity is not even a, a thing anymore. Again, it's going back to what it used to be. And when we look at this, we go, God, what's going on here? Is the church, my question oftentimes, God, is the church at fault? Have we gotten so sedate in the way we believe that we're not evangelizing well enough? And that's probably a true statement. That an evil is starting to reign. We know the church is holding, holding people back because just imagine where things would be if the church wasn't doing praying and doing things. Twelve men turned the Roman Empire upside down. You might say 150 because that's how many were in the upper room. So 150 people turned the world upside down. And we supposedly have millions of Christians that can't get salt and light to keep our world preserved. Now, really, at the end times, it doesn't matter. No matter what we did, it's not going to work. But I also understand that as Christians, there are so many people that say they're Christians that have never shared their, their faith with somebody, never witnessed to anybody, you know, will not say anything's wrong at all. And not even to be critical of it, but just say that's wrong. Because they're just afraid of the world. And we need to really take stock of who we are and what we're doing. Uh, Jesus said, they hated me, they're going to hate you. I think I've shared this. Behind the Iron Curtain, before it fell, the Christians there couldn't understand why most of Europe and America were not judged by God and did not go through hard times. You know, we in America and, and, and Europe were praying that God would deliver them and make life easy. They were praying for us, the judgment and, and tribulation to fall. Because they're looking at God, they're looking at and saying, God, you said that they were going to have troubles. Why, why are they being blessed? And they actually sat in judgment of the, of the, of the Western church. That we were too soft and didn't, didn't believe God well enough to, and didn't take enough stance to be judged. And they just looked at what they were going through. They looked at their Bible and said, God, this is what you promised. Thank you. Thank you for the tribulation you're allowing me to go through. Thank you that I was worthy of this trial. They were saying the same prayer that the disciples said. Well, meanwhile, in America and Europe, we're going, oh, God, why am I going through all of this pain? All I, all I did was go to church that day. <laughs> I didn't even tell anybody about you. <laughs> it is sad to see. But God is cleaning out his church. He's removing a lot of the tears from the church that are there just because it's cool. And in America and in Europe, it was a long time that it was just, you went to church to network, it was the place to be. You went to church because that was the place to go. Good people went to church. Not because I followed God, not even because I believed in God. It's now getting to the place where we're seeing very dark churches that are just there for networking together and not raising God, and then you see the churches with light. And those churches are being attacked and will continue to be attacked because we dare believe in this ancient book that's totally out of date, that sounds so much like today's newspaper when we read it. All right, 
Lord, we ask you to bless this evening. We ask you to help us always to know that you are with us, that you care for us, that you protect us. Lord, help us to always believe that. Help us to stand forward in that and to bring you out to others. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.